Good morning, everybody. Sure is good to see you this morning. It was a great week at Camp Allendale. Amy Christman and Zach Leslie were the two folks there in that video. Amy is our kids minister. She was also the director of last, week, last week's uh, camp at Allendale. And so we want to really thank her for all that extra work that it takes to be the director of camp. That's a super cool thing. Really is. Very proud. Zach was there all week as we had middle schoolers there. In fact, we had around 30 Outlook adults, kids, and middle school students at Camp Allendale. And for our time this morning in God's Word, I've asked a few of them to read our Hebrews passage today. And so please welcome with me Beth Jacobs and her granddaughter, Nora Pattern, Amber Dixon, and her son, Hunter. Come on up, guys. All right. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. Um, I'm hoping you'll bear with me. I lost my voice at camp, <laughs> but we sure had a wonderful time worshiping. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For, for by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sac sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new con covenant between God and people so that so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. He had appeared once for all that the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are dis destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Thank you very much, guys. Let's hear it for them. Thank you, Hunter. Thanks, Amber. Thanks, Beth and Nora. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the, really, the deep, beautiful truth that we've just had so beautifully read to us. Uh, we ask God that as we unpack it and explore it and get into it, that your spirit would use this time to grow us uh, as disciples of Jesus. Lord, that you would uh, do your holy work in us in these next few minutes as we have your word open in front of our open eyes, open hearts, and open minds. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to picture for a moment the frustration of having to do something over and over and over again, kind of like washing the dishes. You can picture that, right? Something that never seems to ever fully get done, uh, never fully clean, at least never for more than just a moment, right, before some dirty spoon, bowl, casserole dish, you name it, right? I mean, uh, doing the dishes always seems like an unending task, the frustration of it never really being finished. Each new day brings us back to the sink. Now, 
take that idea and transfer it to the state of your soul, that frustration, and it can quickly turn into despair. Now, today's passage tells us a better story, and it continues and it deepens so much of what we've been seeing throughout this series. You could sum up what we see in today's passage this way. Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, no matter how hard we try. This is going to be great, great news. So let's dive right in, starting in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 9. We are uh, looking, yeah, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 13. Under the old system, now throughout this series, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting our new gospel, this, this good news that we've received in Christ, contrasting it to what he calls the old system. Uh, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. What is the writer talking about? Talking about the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever spent much time in your Bible in the Old Testament, and of course even in the New, what is up with all this talk about sacrifices? Right? Like, what's the deal there? Why is that important? Why is that necessary? Why is that part of the way God is choosing to reveal himself and interact with humanity? And all this talk of blood, it might unsettle our modern sensibilities. Or is that only me? Anyone else ever felt like that? Like, where's all this coming from? Right? Well, let's go back to the very, very beginning, briefly. Adam and Eve, in the garden, enjoying perfect communion with God, decide to ignore God's directives and introduce into the world, into the system, into human nature, what we call sin, what the Bible calls sin. This idea of, I'm going to do life on my own terms and ignore something that God has said and thus who God is. And when that needed to be addressed... Adam and Eve, in their nakedness, now saw that in a whole new light, and God covered them with the skins of an animal. In other words, an animal died that they might be covered. And from day one, from that point on, an object lesson has been installed into how we interact with God. This object lesson of sin requires a covering, and a sacrifice is needed to make someone somewhere will sacrifice to make that covering possible. It's speaking to a broader truth that now this sin separates me from God and there needs to be something that covers that sin, that deals with that sin, that I might ever have a chance of now interacting with this holy creator of the universe. See, sin always yields death. This is also part of the object lesson. And this needed to be illustrated, this needed to be taught from day one. In fact, really what we're talking about here is the ultimate object lesson. It went on for millennia. You're headed towards spiritual death, you need to turn to God, and the way that looks will involve sacrifice and the covering of sin. This is what is being spoken of right here. It talks about how they'll be ceremonially clean, outwardly clean. That this idea of going to the tabernacle or eventually the temple and that a sacrifice would happen. This is a symbol. This is a foreshadow of what is going to eventually happen in the gospel, Christ and his cross. What we see in the Old Testament 
are the early strains of a tune, a, a melody that will end up booming and resounding and crescendoing in Christ. Verse 14, it goes on, Just think then how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences, not just ceremonially clean, able to come to the tabernacle, but purify our consciousness, our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. So again, the contrast is being made. Just think how much more this is true in Christ. So now we're talking about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, right? The central fact of our faith, the crucifixion coupled with the resurrection. So when you think of the crucifixion, really the writer of Hebrews is telling us that two things are happening. Yes, from a historical kind of immediate visceral point of view, the execution of Jesus Christ, the execution of that rabbi who was the Messiah, his rejection by the Jewish leaders, crucify him, the crowd yelled, and there he is bleeding on the cross. At one level, you have this very historic, real, and visceral thing happening. But then there's this deeper thing that's also happening. The writer of Hebrews is always kind of pulling back the curtain to show us that there's a cosmic story that's being told, even in these historic events. And what you also see on the cross is a perfect life undeserving of death, yet dying anyway, choosing death anyway. And for the Hebrews, the receivers of this letter, people who grew up in the Jewish faith but have said yes to Jesus as the Messiah, for the Hebrews, the writer is saying that this should look very familiar. This should ring a bell with you because you understand Jewish religion, Jewish uh, uh, worship that Jesus was the Passover lamb, that he was that spotless lamb that every year you would, you would bring to the temple as a representation of the sacrifice that needed to be made for your own personal sin or your family's distance from God. This is why Jesus is often referred to throughout the scriptures as the lamb of God. You might remember Early in his ministry, right when it was getting started, John the Baptist is telling people about the Messiah that's about to come. And one day he sees Jesus coming toward him. And what does John the Baptist say? Jesus named him the, the highest prophet of all the prophets leading up to that very moment. Look, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. This is who Jesus is. John could see it. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says these words, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Man, those are powerful words. Jesus, again, is going ahead and letting people around him know this is going to happen. I'm here to not only lead you in the kingdom and to teach you what life looks like in that kingdom, I'm here to be the ultimate sacrifice. I'm going to lay down my life, and guess what? I'm going to take it up again. And I do this. It may, it may look as though a crowd called for my crucifixion, or some, some Roman leader allowed it and, and sanctioned it, but I'm the one choosing it. I lay down my life. I will take it up again. I have the authority to do both. He is the eternal Passover lamb. So this is the other thing that's happening uh, on Good Friday, as we call it, and when Jesus is on the cross. 
Not only is that viscerally taking place, but something much deeper, much more spiritual and historic across the centuries and the millennia are also being culminated in this moment. Someone who never sinned and thus never deserved death is choosing death and changing the whole system. And because of this, we're reading here, our consciences can be cleansed. In other words, from the inside out, now we become new and different people. We are freed from acts that lead to death or sinful deeds as we see it here. Actually, it's kind of interesting. In the original language, it's not so much sinful deeds, it's dead deeds. The word there is used for dead. These are futile deeds, dead works. It describes the fact that without the sacrifice of Jesus, we are stuck. For the Hebrew readers of this letter, they, are, they need to be reminded, you were stuck in a ritual, ritualistic kind of religious system that just kept you coming back to the sink again and again and again. You were stuck in that. It was a dead deed. It, did, it wasn't going to eventually lead anywhere. It was a foreshadow. But now the thing that it was foreshadowing has happened, and so now you can be unstuck from that. Dead deeds, not only outside immorality, but also inward futility, the dead works of religion, the puny efforts and the hollow results of humanity trying to make sense of life on its own. That's you and that's me without Jesus. The sacrificial system produces a hunger for God, right? People come, they want to worship the creator, but then there's this yearning, this dissatisfaction that there must be something more. And so in Jesus, both of those are satisfied. And that's the good news of what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, because now we can worship the living God. And that word for worship is a specific one that doesn't mean only gathering to adore God, maybe sing songs to him as we do, things like that, but it also means to serve as priests. The idea of worship as service, that we get to uh, worship as priests in this world, serve as priests in this world. That's what's made possible. We're all priests now in that sense, in that we don't need a priest. We have Jesus, our high priest. Now we get to share that love, that light, that, that life of God with anyone that we come in contact with. We get to now serve in that way. So this is the contrast that the writer of Hebrews is laying out. Let's keep going. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself, like, we, like he declared there in John, to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that's the, the crux of our thought today. He is the perfect sacrifice. Verse 15. That is why he is the one. Someone say the one. He is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. Now we discussed this new and better covenant last Sunday that God had a plan all along to make his fullest and finest promise through the incarnation, God here is human, the crucifixion, giving that life on the cross and the resurrection, reversing the curse of sin and death. And so the writer here is, is highlighting that Christ did this perfectly and that he was and is our perfect sacrifice. And it is here that we should pause to reflect on exactly what it takes to reconcile God and humanity. 
If we think that's an easy thing, or should be an easy thing, to bring together humanity and the creator of the universe, we are reducing the majesty, the holiness, the immensity of who God is. The creator of everything, the beginning and end of all knowledge and wisdom, the bringer of anything good, and we're probably likely elevating ourselves a bit too. If we think that reconciling humanity and God is or should be an easy thing, we're probably thinking too much of ourselves and too little of God. Just how helpless we really are. Just how holy he really is. Let's think on what Christ has done for us. He took on death. He died in our place. Now that's something we Christians say, and sometimes we might not even stop to think of all that it really means that Jesus died in our place. Or maybe you're checking out this whole Jesus thing, and you've heard people say that, and you're not quite sure what that means. Let me tell you, some days I'm not sure all that it means. Because I think it's just that deep and mysterious and amazing of a truth that Jesus, 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, chose to die on a cross in my place. Friend, if you can wrap your head fully around that, I want to sit down and talk with you after church today. Now, I know it's true. In faith, I, I, I joyfully accept that. But it is a deep mystery. But I feel like there's going to be a day when that mystery will be burned away. He took on death and died in my place. I may not fully know quite how to appreciate this today. I, I probably appreciate it at 10% of all that it really means, right? Because I can't comprehend the whole thing. But friends, hear this. There's going to come a moment when you and I will realize, and I think every human ever living will realize or has, and no one will have to tell us no one will have to explain it to us. But there's going to come a day when we pass from earth to eternity. And we're going to be in a place or at a moment or have a consciousness that's going to say, there is no way in and of myself that I'm going to be able to spend eternity with God. That will be a self-evident fact to me. That who God is and who I am are not going to just naturally mix. That I am far too far away from him. Like standing next to the sun. It's just a matter of fact. I'm doomed. Not condemnation, not shaming, just simply, I'm not getting out of this alive. This is not going to work because I know the reality is just simply there. This is not happening. It does not compute. And then it's going to be in that moment when I'm realizing that I in no way deserve eternity with God, the full weight of the truth that the perfect Son of God died in my place, took care of it, took care of it. In that moment where I think I'm doomed, that I'm even existing one more second, I don't understand that he took care of it and took care of me. That will become evident in that moment. What's a mystery to me now that I can only thank God for and sing praises about and, and read books and, 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 and meditate on the scriptures and and, and just wrap my soul around that truth and love that truth for all that it is, knowing that I can't fully comprehend it. There's going to be a moment when it will become totally evident to me that I owe my entire existence to the fact that the perfect Son of God died on that cross. If you're checking out what this whole thing means, I would encourage you to start a conversation with us on what it means to say yes 
to Jesus. You can scan the code on your seat back in front of you. You can go to outlookchurch.org slash yes if you're with us online. We would just love to start that conversation. In Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about what we're saying here, and he puts it like this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Powerless, ungodly, sinners. Yeah, that's us. That's us. Stuck, as the Hebrew writer says, in dead works. Fruitless deeds, helplessly separated from life as God gives it. This was true under the Hebrew system, and it's really true for us all. For Christ died, back to Hebrews, to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. Now again, he's referring to the Hebrews here, mentioning them and that first covenant, but also just to be clear, in the end, in the big picture, them and they are not only ancient Israel, but ultimately, that's all of us. Actually, if we can just kind of as an aside here, back up as you're reading your Bible and you're talking about, you're learning about Israel and the whole story there, the amazing thing is that the story of the Hebrew people is our story too. We don't have to be Jewish to know that that's also the story of humanity. In fact, this is really the way I think it goes down. To call Israel a chosen people, which the Bible does, is to recognize that God chose them to tell his story through them. He had to tell his story through someone so it could be recorded and we could all learn from it. So God chose them to tell his story through them that we might learn from them and observe them and see ourselves in them. Essentially, in Israel, what God is saying is, what I'm doing through you, Israel, I want to do through everyone. And this can be so easily missed by us as we think about what Israel is and who, who, who they, how we are to consider that nation. They are God's lesson to all of us as to how he wants to work with his humanity. He sets us free, as it says here, from the penalty of sin, the condemnation of sin. Man, that's a truth that cannot be repeated too much, that once you say yes to Jesus, he frees us from, in other words, now you're not just coming back to the sink again and again and again. You come to worship again and again and again. You come to celebrate again and again. But Jesus says that now when we say yes to him, we are being cleansed, not just from the outside in, but now from the inside out, that we are being made new. And so that we are free from condemnation. We don't have to rack up a year's worth of sins and then come back on Passover and sacrifice another lamb. No, those sins are expunged. We confess and we constantly are watching and experiencing the Holy Spirit move through us, sanctifying us, cleansing us. His forgiveness is like a river that just flows over us and it never, ever stops. We're free from that condemnation. Back to the passage. He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all, we read here, unlike that sacrificial system of before, 
This loving, sacrificial act of Christ is now completely effective, pardon me, past, present, and future. And so it ushers in, as it says here, the culmination of the ages, the long last chapter of earthly history, the one age we're living in now in which God can now dwell inside people, inside his people. A little earlier in verse 12 of this chapter, it says, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Just like the idea of the Old Testament sacrifice, the writer is telling us, look, Jesus entered that most holy place of the temple or the tabernacle, and he only has to do it once. He's the perfect sacrifice, and he has now secured our redemption forever. Long gone is the repetitive, incomplete, and frankly, involuntary, right? No animal was standing in line to do this. It was an involuntary sacrifice. You contrast that to what Jesus has done. It's a once for all, finished, and chosen. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. The promise is made. The fulfillment is here in Christ. The annual reminder of sin has now been replaced by a permanent solution to that sin. Friend, have you ever been in a relationship and you wondered, do they really love me? Right? You never need wonder such a thing with God. Think on the cross. Turn the gaze of your soul to the Son of God, sacrificing himself on it, and let it remove all doubt. You are loved. In 1 John chapter 3, we read, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Know in your depths what love is and that you are loved. When you're lonely or hurt or distressed or grieving, when you're unsure or anxious or tumultuous or distracted, how do we know what love is in those moments? It's what the whole world longs to know. And no movie or song or novel or poem or play can tell us completely, though thousands have been written to try. The cross tells us. The cross teaches us. This is how you and I know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. As we wrap up here, we're in verse 27 now. And the writer really brings this truth home. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Now, when you put it that way, right? When when we're reminded of the brevity of life, how fleeting and fragile earthly life is, when a verse like this calls out you and I and our daily presumption of immortality, or at least sometimes it can feel that way, right? Nothing's going to happen to me, at least not today, right? But life is a fleeting thing, at least here on earth. He died for all, and many will say yes, many will not. And that is the hinge of it all. Old Testament prophet Isaiah writes famously in chapter 53 of his prophecies, he was pierced for our transgressions, speaking of the upcoming Messiah. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
most scholars think that the writer of Hebrews now at this moment is kind of echoing what, what Isaiah says next. His life is made an offering for sin, Isaiah wrote, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Man, I'm a rebel when it comes to God. He says, he says, do things one way. Something in me wants to do them the other way. Can anyone relate? He interceded for me, for you. He was numbered among the transgressor, transgressors, those who step over the line, those who, who fall short. Anyone here fall short? He poured out his life. The writer of Hebrews concludes, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin. That was the first time but to bring salvation, to usher in his, his eternal kingdom to those who are waiting for him. Here the writer seems to picture the priest that has gone behind the curtain of the tabernacle to offer the sacrifices to God and then reemerges to pronounce a blessing. That Jesus' second coming is he's gone to the heavenly temple. This is the picture that the writer of Hebrews paints. And now when he comes back again, he's, it's as if the priest is reemerging from behind there now to pronounce his final blessing. He can do this because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and the highest of high priests, as we've read earlier, who is mediating the best covenant, as we also have read earlier. A way was made for me and for you to experience God's love in our depths, not just adhere to his laws. I'm prone to ignore God and think I know best. Nonetheless, God keeps his eye on me and you. He does what is best for us, even though we can't comprehend it, let alone appreciate it at times. But then the news reaches us. Someone solved it. This whole destiny that we're all facing toward death, toward separation from God. Someone solved it. God has bridged it. This distance, a gift has been offered. We repent and we receive. Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves no matter how hard we try. We celebrate that each week when we take communion. If you have your bread in your cup, I'd encourage you to go ahead and grab it here. Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, no matter how hard we try. The, the receivers of this letter, as we've talked about before, persecution was pretty, pretty heated at that moment would have been a lot safer for them to just start going back to all the ritual and just become uh, non-Christian Jews again, non-Messiah-following non Jews. There was a place in the, in, the, in the Roman Empire that was a sanctuary for them there. But this was putting them in the line of fire, and they were in danger of falling away. We're in danger of falling away, if we're ever really honest about it. There's a gravitational pull in this world, in our society, in our culture, in our own minds and hearts that can drag us down and take us away from this life in God. But every week, every week, we come back together and we find our footing. Because we are, as the passage says, waiting. We are waiting. We are anticipating this return. We are, in the meantime, commemorating his first arrival. In fact, that's how Paul put it to the Corinthians. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are celebrating the Lord's death or commemorating the Lord's death until he comes again. We live in the in-between. So when we come together each week, 
We are remembering his final sacrifice. We are, not, we are not doing something over and over again out of the repetition of dead ritual. We are doing it over and over again out of the celebration of living truth, just as he asked us to. The sacrifice has been made by his broken body. Let's take and eat. Once and for all, we've been given the way to be made right with God, to commune with him. Let's thank him for that new and better covenant and drink together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth today. We ask you would plant it in our hearts, help our human minds to begin to comprehend and appreciate and absorb the depth of this truth that you died in our place and changed forever our eternal destiny. We can't thank you enough for that. We thank you for the blood you've shed. We thank you for the life you gave. You chose to give and take up again. We give you our lives now. In Jesus' name, amen.